If you came in late this morning, uh, then you missed the video at the very beginning, which talked about today being a day of prayer for uh, the persecuted church. Uh, Shame that it's just a day. We should be praying for the persecuted church every day, but nonetheless, uh, let's try to pray that way now, and then we'll jump right into the scripture. So, Father, we want to recognize, first of all, how unbelievably good we have it. Uh, The fact that we would struggle at all with a lack of gratitude and thankfulness is astounding. Things might not be exactly like we want them to be uh, in this country, but we're free to worship. We're we're free to have these songs uh, sung over us. We're free to have a property that we can come to and gather on a Sunday morning and throughout the week. We're free to have Bible studies in our homes. We're free to evangelize. We're free to give of our time and money, our resources to advance your kingdom. We're free to have as many kids as we want to have as you lead us to have or we're able to have. Uh, We're free to go around this country and share the gospel at other churches and other places And over world history, 
I'm not sure if it's true, Father, but maybe a majority of people haven't had that freedom. So many of our brothers and sisters uh, that live under persecution, uh, that are thrown to the ground and trampled upon just for simply trying to get to church. So many who have to meet in secret, so many that have to meet in hiding, and yet those people across the world, whether it's India, Afghanistan, Russia, Venezuela, or any number of the other countries, Morocco, they, they follow you with joy. May we be their disciples. May we learn from the persecuted church how to live a life that's not based on our own comfort, but instead is based on glorifying you in whatever situation. And, and Father, we pray now you be with those Christians around the world. Protect them. <clears throat> Give them what they need for life and godliness. Watch over their kids. God, you be uh, their presence and their guide and their comfort. And if, he, if we're ever persecuted, we pray that you, by your spirit, will give us what we need to live that life out, a life worthy of your calling. And until that time, uh, we do pray that you would make us a joyful, grateful, prayerful people, trusting you with every situation in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Luke 20, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe me? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Your authority determines your allegiance. It's a very simple first point that we're going to try to work through. Your authority determines your allegiance. But let's just be honest. We haven't done a great job in this country, especially of late, understanding and having a healthy relationship with authority. I mean, we made it through the Second World War, and then in the 60s, everything kind of blew apart with our authority structure, right? We've had a problem in the suspicion of authority, probably predating Watergate, but it definitely could be marked by Watergate. Now we don't trust the president anymore. Now we think that everybody's up to something. And it only increased in its veracity after that. If it wasn't Watergate, it was Oliver North and the Iran-Contra affair. Or maybe it was Clinton and Lewinsky. I mean, I remember, I think I was in high school, reading through those transcripts in the New York Times. Or maybe it was Powell and Condoleezza Rice and uh, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, pick your, you pick your person. I'm just trying to be fair to everybody here. We've always struggled with some kind of understanding of 
authority. We thought the pastors were safe. And then we get all of those like sexual cover-ups that happened in the Catholic Church and happened in these churches. And we like, we can't trust pastors anymore. They're abusing their authority. You know when I really sensed it uh, was these last two years with COVID. That's when I really, really, I mean, I knew this was happening. I could feel it before. I've actually preached on this before. But, but when COVID happened, I realized, man, there is no authority. People are appealing to all different kinds of news sources. People are appealing to all different kinds of pundits. There's not one person who has credibility that we would kind of all get behind. Everybody is appealing to somebody else. There's no authority structure that anybody trusts. Matter of fact, I had one doctor who is incredibly credible in this area said, Andy, I've been doing and studying this my whole life and nobody will listen to me. My whole life's work has been to understand situations exactly like this. I am literally the expert in South Carolina. And nobody will even listen to me about it. Now, I'm not making a point about COVID. I'm just making a point about the authority structure we've seen has completely broken down. Matter of fact, Diane Langberg, Scott Puckett, I don't know if he's here this morning or not, but Scott's our new pastor. He was in the video. We are uh, installing him today at 4 o'clock, I think, in this room. If you can make it back for that, because we want to encourage uh, our pastors, he begins this journey with us. But Scott and I had about 40 minutes together this week. And he said a number of brilliant things. I was just jotting down. So smart. But one of the things he said was Diane Langberg talks about, she's a world-class scholar on uh, sexual cover-ups, especially within the church and trauma. She said, the problem is we have disembodied authority. Like the authority that we give to social media, to Fox, to CNN, to MSN, to Wall Street. I'm just covering all my bases, right? The authority that we give to people on TikTok or on Instagram or whatever. The authority is disembodied. We can't bump up against them on the streets. We can't talk to them face to face. We, we've disembodied our authority structure. And that's why, friends, the incarnation of Christ is such a big deal. The word became flesh. God came to us and he made his dwelling among us. And Jesus, we've missed this a lot in preaching over the years in America. Jesus said, I'm not just a rabbi. I'm just a a good teacher. I'm not just somebody with some philosophical ideas. I'm actually your authority. That's what's being debated in this text. Tell us, look at verse 2. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you that authority? How do we know that we can trust you? How do we know that we should be obedient to you? That's how the Gospels were framed by this issue of authority. Remember the centurion, Matthew chapter 8? This man over a lot of soldiers, and he had a servant who needed to be healed, and Jesus said, I'll come. And the centurion said, no, you you don't need to come. I have a lot of people under my care. If I just say do it, I know it will happen. If you say do it, I know it will happen. And it said, Jesus marveled at him. Our Lord marveled at his faith. Because as he said to Matthew 8, for I too am a man under authority. And I know what giving authority looks like. Or maybe it's a chapter later, Matthew chapter 9, where he says, but so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat, 
and go home. Mark chapter 1, they were all amazed and they questioned themselves among them. Who is this? A man who's teaching, but one who's teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Or Luke chapter 9, he calls the 12 together and he gives them power and authority over the demons and the diseases. Or John chapter 5, for as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son of Man to have life and he's given him authority to execute judgment. Or... Matthew chapter 8, 28, the Great Commission. Well, remember what Jesus says? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the complete, ultimate, final authority. Therefore, go and now make disciples of all the nations. Whoever your authority is, that's who you'll be allegiant to. And authority can be imposed or it can be gr- granted. For example, uh, you're born in this country and it's imposed. You're born underneath a structure of laws that whether you want it or not, because you're born in this country, you now have to uh, obey those laws. Or it can be granted. You're in a, a bad business deal and you go to arbitration. You go to mediation. You say, we grant you this authority. Well, with Christianity, it's both. Whether we like it or not, we live in the world that Jesus has all authority of. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, all of us will be judged. But it's the Christian that says, not only am I in this authority structure, but I grant you, I grant you authority over my life to tell me how to live, to tell me what to do. God, I am giving you authority. We appeal to him. To his perspective, y'all probably watched football yesterday, maybe not, but I think I know this congregation. (laughs) You know what they do when they uh, try to figure out if the guy from Tennessee actually made it out of the uh, end zone or not, or if it was a safety? They appeal to authority. You throw the flag, and you say, I'm appealing to the authority structure that I have put myself under. And then what does that authority structure do? They go to the screens. And they look at all the different perspectives that we can't possibly see. And you watch the rerun in real time, like bang, bang, real time. You're like, I don't know. And then you slow it down. You say, how could anybody miss that? From one of the 10 or 12 or 20 videos. And that's what we do as Christians. We say, I don't understand this, Jesus. I'm appealing to you. And I recognize that you have a perspective eternally through all these different lenses that I can't possibly know or see. So would you just adjudicate this claim for me? Would you just tell me what to do? Would you just teach me how to follow you? I'm appealing to you and I will be allegiant to you. Now it helps in three areas and we're going to go through these quickly. But I'm taking a broad swath of this text because, you know, we're preaching all the way through the New Testament, which is incredibly hard to do. I'm not a persecuted pastor, so I'm not complaining. It's a first world problem, right? But three things. It helps with our purpose in life. It helps with pride. And it helps with power, our understanding of it. So going on to verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. So there's not a break. This has just happened. And in order to illustrate where he is, he says, and I'm going to have to tell you a parable so that you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. A man planted a vineyard, 
and he lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. And they sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. In other words, perhaps they'll see that he's the authority. He's my son. But the tenants saw him and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and will destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this is pretty interesting. Let me just summarize it for us. In the parable, obviously, it's a land lease. There's an owner of the property. He's leasing it to uh, these uh, feudal farmers, basically. But it's still his. It's his crops. He sends to collect some of the crops. The first one they beat and they throw out. The second one they beat, they treat them shamefully, and then they throw them out. The third one they wound, and then they throw him out empty-handed. I'll send my son... And then the son, they decide to kill. Now, the fascinating, I don't know if you figured this out or not, but when he's telling the story, and he gets to verse 15 and 16, and he says, uh, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Don't you think everybody would have said, the owner of the vineyard has every right to destroy these people. He killed his son, his only son. He killed all the servants, and it's his land. He owns it. But how did they respond? Look at verse 16. They said, surely not. In other words, heaven forbid, is another translation, heaven forbid that the owner of the vineyard would come and would take any vengeance. Now, why would they say that? Here's why. Because they knew, because of the vineyard language, in the vineyard analogy, these scribes knew that they're the ones who are taking advantage. And they're thinking in their minds, We haven't done anything this wrong. We still want, this vineyard is Jerusalem. We still want control over Jerusalem. We haven't killed anybody. We just want these uh, imposters, these uh, Romans uh, that are here. We want them out. And Jesus, we want you out. But this is our land, and God's trying to communicate, no, it's my land. And then he goes on to say that line that we know, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, I'm the cornerstone, I'm the rock, and you've rejected me. Why did they reject him? Because he didn't fit. The cornerstone's supposed to fit perfectly so that the rest of the building can be built around that cornerstone. And what did they want? They wanted a king, an earthly king, that would kick out the Romans and put them in power They wanted the kingdom that was of that world. And Jesus comes meek and mild and says, my kingdom is not of this world. And actually, I'm going to teach you about grace and repentance and how to forgive. And they said, we don't, that doesn't fit anything that we're trying to accomplish in this life. So the cornerstone they rejected, mainly because he wasn't a capstone. Now let's just put a a fine 
point on this and, and give you one, one little point of application and we'll move on to the next one. When it comes to this issue of purpose and when we come to this parable, one of the takeaways that we can do uh, is simply this. Work the vineyard that you're given for God's glory until he returns. Philip Brooks said it this way. It was not suddenly and unannounced that Jesus came into the world. He came into a world that had been prepared for him. The whole Old Testament is a story of special preparation. Only when all was ready, only in fulfillment of all time, did Jesus come. Work the field as a tenant that God has given you to work with purpose until he comes home. I, uh, I didn't make it through that first hymn. I don't know how y'all did. I don't know how anybody, I don't know how the choir sang that first hymn. I was trying not to distract the choir by my tears in the front row. But looking at all those names, who I know all of those people, buried the majority of them. And I started thinking through, nobody wants to be widowed in this life. But that's the field you must now work until Jesus comes home. And nobody wants cancer in this life. But that's the field that you must work until God comes back or calls you home. Nobody wants a prodigal kid. Nobody wants financial hard times. There's all these things that we don't work, but the purpose of life, as Jesus tells us, is work this field for my glory until I come home, whatever that field is. I've told you about Moot Hill. It's in Scotland, kind of the middle region. And uh, that's where they used to coronate the kings of Scotland. And it's in the middle of this field. You should all go. We should take the whole church and go there. Um, That'd be a blast, actually. Uh, In the middle of this field, it rises up to about seven feet tall. And then it's about the size of a basketball court. So in the middle of the field, rises up seven feet, just kind of like a raised green, and then the size of a basketball court, and there's a coronation stone on there where they would crown the kings of Scotland. Why does it rise up seven feet, and why does the land change at that point? Here's why. Because when there was a new, for centuries, when there was a new king coronated in the Scottish lands, all the farmers and all the people in any part of the region would come to that place where he was coordinated for weeks on end and they would bring with them dirt from their land and they would go before the king and they would pour out the dirt on the land and they would stand on it and they say, I pledge my allegiance to you, king, here in your presence. And I also pledge my allegiance to you on my land when I'm not in your presence. And so over the course of years, that got built up to seven feet high, about the size of a basketball court from everybody coming. And that's what it means, friends, to have purpose in this life, to say, I'm going to work the vineyard you have given me to work. I'm going to do what I need to do to glorify you. I am not my own. I need to move on. Number two, pride. Verse 18. Then he says this statement, which is... um, I love this statement. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What God's going to do is give you purpose. And then when you're allegiant to him and you make him your authority, he will destroy your pride. So first of all, we see this cornerstone that you fall on this stone and you're broken into pieces. 
Let me just tell you, friends, if uh, you're not a believer here this morning in Christianity, it's okay to be broken. You have permission to be vulnerable. Christians aren't the ones that just have it all together. And I don't mean in this like self-aggrandizing, I'm so broken, you know, I'm just such a mess. No, I I mean in the real like, I am a mess. (laughs) I am broken. You know, I've never, I've never liked this idea of I asked Jesus into my heart. Even when I wasn't a Christian, that phrase bothered me. Because it puts you at the center. Like, I'm deciding that you're now going to, I'm going to now carve out a little space and I'm inviting you. In. It puts man at the center. A better way to communicate salvation is this. I have fallen on Christ. I have thrown myself on his mercy. And he is breaking down my pride that I have it all together. And sometimes things have to be broken down before they can be built back up. One of the hindrances to our growth in the Christian life is our refusal to let ourselves be fully broken so that God can put us back together. I was uh, renovating my bathroom. This is years ago after we had Daniel because all three of my kids have shared one bathroom their entire lives, which is the way it should be. It was one, one bathroom. And then once we had Daniel, it was just a sink and a toilet and a shower all in one room. I thought, I'm going to have to put up a pocket door here. Like, I'm going to have to separate some of this for guys, girls, right? But I'm not building another bathroom. You're all still using this one. And so I worked on I built the wall, and I retiled everything, and I put in two sinks and rearranged everything, replumbed it, and did all that kind of stuff. And I'm almost, I haven't painted it yet, but I've got the pocket door in. Those things are a pain. And I'm doing the last kind of nail, a trim nail in, and uh, I was so excited. I did the last nail, and the, the pocket door was just working. It was so smooth. It was just working beautifully. And I said to Elizabeth, Elizabeth, come in here. I was just so proud, so prideful. I said, Elizabeth, come in here. Look at this. And I took one finger, and I remember I was just going to flick the door and just have it kind of slide over. And I flicked it, and it went choo-choo. I pushed it back, flicked it again, And the last nail that I nailed in hit the rail of the pocket door and made a very, very small indention. I I wasn't gracious that night to anybody. (laughs) I started immediately tearing out all the drywall, all the trim work. There was no other way to do it. I had to take the whole system out. And at one point, Elizabeth came in and she said, why don't you put down that hammer and then she looked at me and just walked away. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the time to tell me anything right now. But I had to break everything down to get out that one, to get out the railing, the, the, you know, you, I don't even know what the right phrase is, uh, to get the whole thing out, to hammer out that one little speck, one little sin of your life, one little thing of our lives that's off. God has to break you down to fix it. He's got to deconstruct you. And you've got to let him. You've got to let him be the authority and say, God, break me down. Help me to understand why I'm so angry. That one little comment of gossip or slander, that one little, it's just a little tiny thing maybe. Maybe it's huge, but maybe it's just a little thing. Why do I respond? 
respond that way? Uh, why am I so prone to be stingy? Why don't I trust you? Why don't I pray, God, could you break me apart and fix me so I can work the way I'm supposed to? Because if that doesn't happen, friends, look what happens. Anybody who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The, the word there in Greek is actually pulverize you. You can either fall on the grace and the mercy of Christ and be broken and allow him by redemption to put you back together, or he will fall on you and he will crush you. And he will crush you by his harshness. Have you been surprised like I have when we've started to jump into the New Testament, some of the harshness of God? You blind guides, you fools, you people that want, you know, I think sometimes we kind of read that out of the scripture because we don't want him to say that to us. But many times the harshness of God is uh, there on the page. Or if he doesn't crush you with his harshness, he'll crush you with his kindness. Like the woman in Luke chapter 7, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You don't think you're uh, too bad or you don't think you're too good. Let me tell you, scribes and Pharisees, this woman who you think is worth nothing, she loves. And she's the one I've forgiven. The kindness of God will crush you or the harshness of God. Lastly, I want to leave time to get right to this table. The power of God. So purpose, pride, and power, your authority, determines your allegiance on these things. The scribes, verse 19, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. They're a little dense. Can we just say that? But they feared the people. They watched him and they sent spies and they pretended to be sincere that they may catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Just a few points here. If you've been around church for any number of years, you've heard all of these passages preached, and you kind of know the trajectory that we're going to go on. These scribes and these chief priests, they loved power. They loved control. You might say, Andy, I don't love power. I'm not power hungry. Oh, you love control, though. And control is a form of power because you want things to be a certain way in your kitchen and in your car and on a Friday night. Uh, you know, let's just be honest. Uh, we love power way more than we like to think that we do. And, and here, these scribes are trying to discredit them. They're trying to find these spies and say, go discredit them. Go, f go prove to me that this Christianity thing isn't true. <laughs> We've had non-believers do that with us. About 10 years ago, I had a friend of mine. Uh, I was badgering him to come to church. 
He's not a believer, and he finally did. And I saw him the next week in the neighborhood, and he said, Hey, I finally came to your church. Nobody greeted me. And I said, Man, you are looking for that. Let's be honest. You just imposed judgment on a thousand people because they didn't greet you, but now you're judging them. Do you not see the hypocrisy with that? And he said, I had never thought of it that way. He hadn't come back to church yet. Maybe I was too harsh. But, you know, people can try to look at Christianity and find all the ways that they want to discredit it. That's what the scribes are doing. And the goal to discredit Jesus was to get him to admit conflicting allegiances based on the authority and power structure. You see, if we can get him to say, uh, this is Caesar's, then we can make him a pawn of Rome. And we can immediately take him before the Jewish court and we can kill him. Or if we can get him to say he's not allegiant to Rome, then we can take him before the Romans and call him a traitor and we can kill him that way. So this is the plan. we got to get him to go one way or other on this authority structure. And ever since then, including St. Augustine, the city of God and the city of man, We've always struggled as Christians to try to figure out how we interact in the nations and in the countries we live in. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which, of all things, most emphatically belongs to God himself. And let me just say this. I'm going to say one thing, and then we're going to move right on to the Lord's Supper here. This is a major issue for every Christian in our nation today. And here's what I would ask. I would beg of you uh, to begin to have good, dignified, dialogical conversations just within this church. Giving each other the benefits of the doubt listening to one another, trying to understand different perspectives because this issue of how we act in politics as Christians is tearing apart the church right now from the inside out. Generationally, party divides so many different ways. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I love this country. I think this country is the greatest country in the history of the world. I told you last week, my biggest regret is not being able to serve in the military for this country. Uh, On November 21st and November 24th, I will sing louder than you will. I believe that we will win when the U.S. plays Wales and the U.S. plays England in the World Cup. (laughs) But this country is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. We just pray for all the persecuted people around the world. We do have to kind of widen our eyes and our range and have good dialogue on how we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And what do we give to God? Ourself. And look at the end of this. These spies that were sent out, they marveled at him. They said, we've never found a God like this. We've never found a rabbi like this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God's what is God's. And whose inscription is on that thing? Show me a Daenerys. They all kind of go around. Do you have one? Oh, I've got a coin. Whose is that? That's Caesar's. Okay, but where is the image imprinted upon you? You're made in the image of God. 
So give of yourself to the Lord. And they marveled and they became silent. As Sinclair Ferguson says, a Christian is the one who learns how to shut up. The Christian is the one who learns to live before the Lord and marvel at his phrases. I'm the good shepherd. I've overcome the world. I am the light. I am the bread of life. I am all these things for you. So be allegiant to me. You know, you're not morally neutral. Until you become a Christian, (laughs) I don't have time to go down this theological stream, but I need to say it. Uh, Until you become a Christian, you're actually claimed by Satan. He's the claimer of the dead. He lays claim on you. Evil lays claim on you. It's not like you're morally neutral trying to decide. And what happens when you become a Christian is Jesus, through his blood, he lays claim on you. And he says, no, this one's mine. Hands off. This girl's mine. This guy's mine. I know they don't look like much. I know they're confused. I know they're a sinner. But I have covered them with my blood. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And these are mine. And I won't lose one of them. So back off, everybody else. Jesus, with his authority, lays claim on you. And when we go to this communion table, that's what we're saying. It is the, I hate to say it this way, but maybe you'll forgive me. It is the Christian Pledge of Allegiance. It is the way that we come to this table and says, Jesus, you have laid claim to me, and now I am claiming you are my authority. And I will follow you. And so, on the screen... We'll have this question from the Westminster Catechism. What is the Lord's Supper? Don't read it. I'm going to read it to you. Here's the answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, his death is showed forth, and they worthily communicate and feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And they have their union and communion with him confirmed they testify and they renew their thankfulness their engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body look at those three here's what we do at communion table we renew our thankfulness we engage with the Lord God how's it going between us Yeah, let's leave that up. And then we remember our mutual love and esteem for one another. Let me give you just a moment of silence. Think through those, and then we'll come to this table. And now let's say this prayer together.